Well, brothers and sisters, if you'd grab your Bible and open up to the book of 1 Peter this morning, that's where we're going to start. And our text for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. This morning we get to start a new sermon series. We're going to be studying the attributes of God, and 1 Peter 3.18 is going to lead us into that study, setting us up for it. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Hear the word of our God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Let's pray. Well, Father, we ask for your help this morning. We've opened up your word. We have read it, and we ask now that you would send your spirit that we might gain by it, that our souls might gain by it, that we might find food for life in this verse. So minister to us this morning, Father. Help us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to set us up this morning. I want you to think this morning of the Bible as a great hike. A hike with all sorts of unexpected twists and turns. A hike with all sorts of, of steep inclines and difficult and challenging terrain. A hike that, that pushes your endurance. A hike that also has long stretches of, of flat plains on it. Flat stretches that you have to just walk through and, and push through. Flat stretches that, that push your patience. But this hike also has a particular destination point, a destination point worth all the trouble and effort and energy expended on that hike, a destination point that is at the top of a mountain and is a lookout with jaw-dropping sights. So for thinking of the Bible as a great hike like that, we have to ask, well, what then is that destination point? What is that jaw-dropping sight? What is that point that we get to after working through all that challenging and difficult terrain and some of that terrain that we just have to push through that pushes our patience? What is it? It might be wise to change our tack this morning and make it a bit more personal. So think of the Bible as a great hike, but also think of your life as a great hike. There's all sorts of twists and turns that belong to your life and only to your life. You have unique challenges, unique circumstances and suffering and relationships and talents and, and blessings and gifts. That's you. But there are also some things that we all share together as Christians in common. In Christ, we've all been called by God, born of the Spirit, justified, forgiven, sanctified. Every true Christian shares in those realities. And if we put that in hiking terms, every Christian has, has passed through or is going to pass through those, those trail markers of the Christian life. And so for thinking of our lives as a great hike, we have to ask, well, what then is the destination point of our lives? After we make it through the challenging terrain, 
After we push through the, 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 the seemingly boring spots of our lives, where are we going? What are we getting to? What are we looking at at that lookout? What's the answer to that question? Well, there are a few different answers out there. Some, as you contemplate those questions, might not be aware of any sort of destination point. When you pick up your Bible, you just, you just read your Bible. You move from passage to passage, book from book. You, you do the Bible reading plan, and then you do it again and again and again, year after year, and that's it. You can compare your Bible reading experience to that of the, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You're just going around in the circuitous route, never getting anywhere, just wandering and wandering and wandering. And I spent a good part of my life wandering in my Bible reading. I knew that I should read my Bible. I knew that it was an essential component of my life in Christ, that I couldn't live without it. But I wasn't quite sure where my Bible reading was supposed to take me. Where am I going with this? What am I getting done? Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning as you consider your Bible or going that more personal route. Maybe that's where you find yourself as you consider your life. You're like the Israelites just wandering in the wilderness, not quite sure where you're going. There's another possibility. There's another answer here. You do have a destination point in mind. There is no wandering or confusion. You're not like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But, but sadly, your destination point is the wrong destination point. So you're not Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Instead, you're Israel wanting and desiring to go back to Egypt, longing to return to, to slavery and life far from God. Perhaps that's where you find yourself this morning. Well, you might not exactly know the destination point of the Scriptures. You do have a destination point, and it doesn't line up with the Scriptures. You're headed the wrong way. Now, if you find yourself with any sort of alignment with either of those positions, my, my aim this morning is to give you some help. And I want to give you some help by asking and answering one question. We've already asked it. What is the destination point? What is the destination point of Scripture? And what is the destination point of my life? Or what ought it to be? So we're going to go to 1 Peter 3.18 for help. So look there at that verse with me. Peter has precious words for us. He writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You have to love this verse. This verse is, is soaked and saturated with, with gospel truth. And, and because of that, every little bit of this verse ought to be savored and enjoyed by the Christian. So let's just work through this verse for a few moments, bit by bit, savoring it. So Peter starts, he, he writes, for Christ suffered once for sins. That's the first thing he says to us in this verse. And many people have suffered as we think about it. Suffering is nothing new to life. In fact, first, in 1 Peter, the theme of suffering is prominent. Peter tells us that God's people will suffer. And in fact, they should expect suffering in their calling as a Christian. But here, as Peter writes about Jesus, he says this, for Christ suffered once for sins. And Peter sees something different and distinct, something unique about Jesus and his suffering. He suffered in such a way for sins, in a way that no one else could. 
And Peter is telling us here that, that Jesus' suffering for sins was definite. It was final, not to, repeated, not to be repeated again or added to ever. And Peter expands on this, explaining what he means. He says then, for Christ suffered once for sins. Let me tell you more about this. The righteous for the unrighteous. And this is helpful because Jesus' suffering wasn't for himself or for his own sins. Peter makes that point clear. Who is Jesus? He is the righteous one. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 describes Jesus like this. He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Instead, Jesus suffered for the unrighteous and their sins. Jesus is the righteous one. And in this equation, we are the unrighteous ones. And so what did Jesus do? Well, we can use the theological language. Jesus did a substitutionary work. He took up the sinner's tab of guilt and debt and damnation, saying, that's my tab now. And then he paid for it with his own suffering, paying it in full. And you can hear in Peter, if you listen really carefully, language from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah writes, speaking of Jesus, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What is Isaiah doing? He's giving us all of this, this colorful language that we might understand the work of Christ. What did Jesus do? He did a sin-bearing work, bearing up our iniquities. He had anguish of soul in this work, pouring out his soul unto death. Believer, what did Christ do for you? He did this work. He did a soul-wearying work, a life-emptying work, a sorrow-filled work, a blood-letting work for you. That's what Peter means when he says the righteous for the unrighteous. And then Peter sums it up with these words. He says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so Peter doesn't shrink from the news of Jesus' suffering, substitution, and death. He, he placards it before our eyes, showing us Jesus' sufferings. This is our hope. But he also does something else. He proclaims to us the news of Jesus' victory and justification. Just as Jesus was put to death in the flesh, he was also made alive in the spirit. And so Peter sums up these precious words with these two words, death and resurrection. That's Jesus' story for God's people. So just take a moment and ponder that verse. Peter gives us these precious words. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And I challenge you this morning, you can search out scripture from beginning to end, but you'll be hard-pressed to find another verse with the saturation level of gospel truth as this verse. It is so saturated. And you have to love what Peter is doing in this verse. He is preaching to us, and as he's preaching to us, he is just holding up Jesus to us. He is saying, behold your Savior and his sorrow-filled work for your salvation. Do you, do you see him? 
And he goes further, Christian, did he behold your Savior in his, in his victory for you, made alive in the Spirit, in the Spirit. But if you're staring at your Bible this morning, if you're paying attention to the text, you will notice that there's one part of the verse that I've, I've carefully avoided. I worked through the verse, but we didn't work through the whole of the verse. Listen to the verse again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you see what I missed? That he might bring us to God. And here, in, in the middle of these precious words, Peter does something quite stunning. Do you see it? He is telling all, he's telling us that all of this precious truth about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us is a means to an end. Or to put it in a logical sort of way, Peter subordinates Jesus' suffering and death to another reality, a reality I think we can argue is greater. Or to put it like this, he is telling us Jesus' bloody substitution and glorious resurrection, they are not the, the end point, the destination, the lookout. Rather, something else is. That almost sounds sacrilegious to say, but that's what the grammar of verse 18 tells us. Look at the verse. Jesus suffered, he bled, he died. Why? Here's the purpose, Peter says, that he might bring us to God. So what is the destination point? We're asking our question. Well, according to Peter, the destination point is God. The goal of the gospel, the goal of scripture, the goal of Christ's life and work and suffering and death and resurrection is God, that he might take a people and bring them with him to God. And what Peter has done in verse 18, I think, is this. He has brought us to the end of all things. What he has done in this verse is he has dug down and he has laid his hands, both of them, on the nub of all things. He sees what all of reality is about. What I want to do really briefly is just trace out Peter's words and see how they help us make sense of absolutely everything. So let's start by applying verse 18 to all of Scripture. So we ask, well, what is the destination point of, of Bible reading? Well, let's just work this through. Let's go to the very beginning. The Bible begins with, with creation. God made everything, land, sea, birds, fish, mountains, sunsets, sunrises, stars, and finally, a man and a woman. And we ask, why? Why? Well, the answer is this, for God. At the center of the creation story is this temple garden. And in this temple garden, the man is to work and serve the Lord forever, being in fellowship with him, having God as his God. We can move on in the story. We can move to fall. What is the great problem of sin? Well, the great problem of sin is this. The man and the woman have to vacate that temple garden on account of their sin, their fellowship with God, their joy in God, their knowledge of God, their grasp on God is dashed and destroyed because of their sin. We can move on in the story. You can go to the patriarchs. You get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we find in their, their lives all sorts of interesting and quirky things. We find marriage stories and, and barren wombs. We find miracle births. As we look in their families, we find envy and rivalry and deceit and all sorts of trouble. And we ask as readers, what are these stories about? 
Well, the answer is this. They are all about God. The controlling theme of the the patriarchs is this word, Genesis 17, 7. I will be God to you and to your offspring. So there's the patriarchs, and we move on to the next big event, and that's what? The Exodus story. The Exodus story is such a great story. It's full of wonders and miracles and, and plagues and mighty deeds. We find all of these things happening in Egypt, And then there's the climax, the Red Sea, it's opened up, Israel goes through on dry ground, and then Yahweh brings the waters back down upon Pharaoh and his host, destroying them all, and we ask his readers, what is this all about? And again, the answer is God. Exodus 4, 22 and 23, Moses, the Lord tells Moses this, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me about God. There's some books that bother us in our Bible reading. We get to the book of Leviticus, and all of its laws and procedures begin to numb us, and we get confused, and, and our minds start to wander. But even here, what is this book about? It is all about God. For what is this book about? At the center of the book is the Day of Atonement, this great sacrifice. Why? So this holy people might be able to dwell with their God. Fast forwarding in the story, we find kings, we find David and Solomon. What are their lives about? Well, their lives are God oriented. What is the great result of their lives? Well, it's a, a temple for the Lord where God might dwell with his people and reverse that, that the people might dwell with God. And then there are prophets too. Some of them preach and some of them write and some of them do some very odd things. But they all essentially say the same thing. They all essentially say this, Isaiah 40, verse 9, Behold your God, do you see him? Your God in judgment, your God in salvation. Return to him, know him, love him, serve him. Behold your God. Much could be said about Jesus and his apostles, but Peter's words help us in that, revealing their significance. And also, I'll just go to the very end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. This is how the Bible concludes The Lord speaks. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So you see what Peter is doing in chapter 3, verse 18. He has uncovered the logic of all scripture. He is putting his hands upon the nub of it all and he is saying, I see it. I see it in Christ's life, in death, in suffering. It is all to bring us to God. And as we look out from this verse, we see it's true everywhere. In creation, in Exodus, in kings, in prophets, wherever you look, this is at work. It's all for God. And if that's true for Scripture, it must then be true for our lives. So just think over all that God has done for you in Jesus. He has done so much for you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He then called you to himself through the gospel of his son. He united you to Jesus through his spirit. He woke you up when you were dead in your sins. He then gave you the gifts of faith and repentance. He took you from the life of sin and then transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. He justified you saying, you are now righteous. He forgave you. He passed over all of your sins. And then on top of that, he said... Adopting you, 
You are my son and you are my daughter. All of these things God has done for you in Jesus and it's glorious. And each one of these things is precious and sweet. But we must ask here, where do all of these things go? Where do they lead? Where does predestination lead? Where does regeneration lead? Where does justification lead? Where does adoption lead? And the answer is this, they all go to God. Think about it like this. The Father gave, the Son accomplished, the Spirit applied, so that this might happen, believer, that you might belong to God, and that consequently you would have the right and privilege to say, my God, my God. Believer, Christian, this is your glorious inheritance, God. Think about it like this. We, we come to church and we, we gather with God's people. We listen to sermons. We, we go home and throughout our week, we, we read our Bibles and we seek the Lord in prayer. We, we wait in faith for the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. And we do all of these things. Why? We do it because we want God. We want Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we want nothing else. We want God. It's probably wise here just to slow down and, and tap the brakes. We're, we're cruising top speed. As so we've asked our question, where, where, what is the destination point? Where is everything going? And Peter has given us the answer to God, to God. And so with all of that in place, I want to slow down and I want to ask a reflective question. And this question sets us up for the whole fall. How well do you know God? How well do you know this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And I hope you can see why I would ask this question. All of Scripture goes to God. Christ suffered to bring us to God. Our lives in Christ are going to God. Everything is going to God. God is capital I important. So we had better be very concerned with that three-letter word and the deity that it represents. So how well do you know this God? A number of years ago, I once got the question put to me like this in a sermon. The, the preacher was going on, and, and he said something like this. If I were to put a, a pad of paper in front of you, and I gave you this assignment, and I gave you as much time as you wanted, an hour or two, and the assignment is this. Write as much as you know about God on that pad of paper. Write as much as you know about God. And the one caveat the preacher gave was this. You have to write about God. Not about yourself or something else. You have to be about God. You can't be like the best man giving the wedding speech who just talks about himself and never talks about the groom. You actually have to write about God. When I heard that, that question struck me. One of those questions, when you, when you hear it, just immediately, it immediately got under my skin and, and bothered me. And the thought that was there and it was there right away was this, I don't know him nearly enough. I speak his name all of the time. I read of his name. I hear his name. But I only feel as if he is a, a faint outline, just a mere shadow in my head. And so I put that question before you. How well do you know God? If I gave you a pad of paper 
and I asked you to, to write what you know of God down and I gave you a few hours, what would be the result? Could you write down a few lines? Maybe a paragraph or two? Would it be a full page? As you think about it, would this exercise be a massive struggle, like you're wrestling with your head trying to pry out words and get them on the paper? Or would it be something different? Would it be a joyful matter? Would it be an explosion of words, like when you talk about your, your spouse or your children, the words just flow out and you can talk and you can talk and you can talk? What would it be like for you? The late A.W. Tozer puts it like this, pressing us with the importance of knowing God. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he's getting at this idea, do you really know God? And so there's no more urgent task for the Christian than this, to know God as he really is and as he really reveals himself in Scripture. So what we're going to do for the next 15 weeks is we're going to go to God, intentionally setting our sights upon him, studying his, his existence, his essence, his attributes, or to go back to how we started thinking about a great hike. What we're going to do is we're going to go to that destination point, and we're just going to stand there, not leaving it for 15 weeks, and just looking and looking and looking at God. So each week, we're going to focus our attention on a word that describes God. Some of these words you'll know well, words like love or mercy or holiness. You've heard them before. Other words might be vaguely familiar with you, like eternal or infinite or omnipresent. And some words might be brand new to you. Our vocabulary might expand as a church. Words like aseity or simplicity or immutability. But what we are going to do is week after week, we're going to say this, God is this. And then we're going to stand there and look. We're going to look. So that's our plan for the fall. And before we do this, I want to give you a few words of preparation, four of them, just to prepare you for standing at this lookout and looking at God. And so the first word of preparation is this, you should expect difficulty in these 15 weeks. Expect difficulty. So imagine the scene. You, you're going to Mount Everest and you're going to climb Mount Everest. You've trained for it. You've got all of the supplies for it. And then you, you show up, you're at base camp with all of the, the other climbers ready to roll. And then somebody shows up at base camp and they've got a t-shirt on. They've got flip-flops on and shorts on. What do you think in your head? This guy is not prepared. <laughs> He is not ready for this. He doesn't understand this mountain, how difficult and dangerous it is. He won't make it. And as we think about the doctrine of God, as we, as we try to understand God himself, we're not going out on a casual stroll or an easy hike up the side of a hill. No, when we study God himself, we come to the, the very pinnacle of theology. We come to the Everest of all thinking. Just, just think about it. We're trying with our words to describe one who is infinite, someone who cannot be contained. We're trying with our eyes to get a look at the one who is boundless beyond all measure. And so we should expect difficulty in this study. It is baked into the study of God. We should expect our brains to hurt at times. And if your brain hurts at times in these 15 weeks, that's okay. That's to be expected. 
We should be expected to be stretched and pulled in our imagination, in our thinking. We should expect that even our language will fail us. And that's good. Because we're dealing with God, our language should indeed fail us. For our words cannot sum up our God. And so expect difficulty. Second, expect glory. Expect glory. There's nothing drab or boring or routine about God. There's nothing mediocre or average about God. He is glorious. Glorious in his words, glorious in his work, glorious in his persons, glorious in his character. So bright that even the angels who minister before him day and night have to cover both their eyes and their feet because they cannot, they cannot stand the brightness of his glory. And so we should expect as we climb this Mount Everest, that we're going to get bright glimpses of glory. And in fact, we should take up the words of Moses. Do you remember the scene? Israel sinned against the Lord with the golden calf, and, and Moses is interceding for the people. In the midst of this interceding, Moses goes to the Lord, and he wants assurance of who the Lord is for these people. And so he prays this, Exodus thirty-three eighteen: Lord, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. And what did the Lord do? He did it. He took Moses and he hid him in the cleft of the rock and, and passed before him. And that's how we should approach this study. We should be praying with Moses, Lord, would, would you please show me your glory? And then we should expect in faith that the Lord will take us and tuck us in the cleft of the rock with Moses and allow us to see his glory. Third word, expect satisfaction. To know God isn't filling up on a bunch of theological jargon. To know God isn't getting a bunch of theological facts crammed into your brain. We're going to learn new things about God. But learning God is so much more than that. It is to find happiness and joy. To really know God is to gain joy in Him. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are, are pleasures forevermore. What is it like knowing God? The psalmist is saying it's like finding forever pleasures. It's like finding fullness of joy. It's like finding life itself. So this study then should be a study that leads us to deeper joy and pleasure in God. It should be a study, if we, if we come to God's word with, with faith, that, that weans us from the lesser things of this world and weans us from the sinful things of this world and brings us back to God so that we might feast upon him, the best feast of all. So we should expect difficulty, we should expect glory, we should expect satisfaction, and we should expect, lastly, fourth word, help. We should expect help. So there's going to be some big words like immutability and aseity or simplicity, omnipresence, other words as well. And you might not expect help from those sorts of words. They might scare you off because they're so big and they seem daunting to you. But that would get this whole study wrong and it would get God himself wrong because there is nothing more helpful. Or to put it like this, there's nothing more potent for application than the knowledge of God. 
knowing God for who he is. For example, let's say right now you're anxious about your, the future of your finances. It's consuming you. You can't sleep at night. What better balm is there than to know this? The plentitude of God. He is beyond all bounds. He cannot be measured. And he is yours in the gospel. Boundless God for you. Or maybe you're weary and discouraged and tired. You're struggling with your own humanity. Your body is not cooperating with you. And life is a struggle. Every day is a struggle. What better remedy is there than this? The aseity of God. God is ase. He does not derive life from anyone else. He is life itself. And in the gospel, he is your God. Your God. Or perhaps you're meeting temptation. And it's coming after you. It's getting its claws into you. It's pulling you along. What better recourse is there than the immutability of God? So we're going we're gonna to step into these doctrines for help. And we want to learn how to use the knowledge of God for our benefit, for balm and recourse and salvation. For our God is our salvation. And we can be assured of this. In God is all that we need. You need God. And so we should expect as we turn to this study, we will find great help. And so what is our destination point? Well, Peter has told us. Christ suffered, bled, and died. He, he rose to bring us to God. And what are we going to do this fall? We're going to follow Peter's logic and go to God so that we might know him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Peter's helpful and precious words. There's so much sweetness in this text. We see much, so much of, of Christ. And we're so thankful for his ministry that he suffered, bled, and died that he might bring us to you. And so as we begin this study, would you minister to our hearts? We cry out with Moses, Lord, show us your glory, and we expect that you will show us much. We ask for strength in this series that we might be able to try to comprehend you. We ask for glory that we might be overwhelmed with who you are. We ask for satisfaction that we might get tastes of you and not turn away from you, but say, you are our joy and our delight. We expect so much help. Would you Help us as we look at you, as we pray all of this, expecting much from you. In Jesus' name, amen.